Hey there, Pinpoint Players. Tim here with the Pinpoint Player Podcast. Welcome to our Season 3 premiere. I'm joined tonight with my buddy Rambo. What's going on, guys? Glad to be back for Season 3. We wanted to thank you for joining us on this long journey, sticking it out for Season 2. And joining us for the Season 3, we're going to open up more of a different kind of a format. So uh, today we're going to be talking about the obscure games in our lives. Yeah, definitely. And that's games that is not AAA. Stuff like, like your Call of Duties, your Battlefields, your Maddens, Assassin's Creed's of the world. Stuff that's, if you were to go to a random person in a bar when those are a thing again, and ask them, hey, have you played this insert obscure game? The answer to them being no. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, everyone knows the mainstream games. I mean, you've got your great A titles, you know, Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Auto 5 still what is it, six or seven years later? Actually, it's crazy. I think it's, uh, if it reaches this September without a sequel, and it will, it'll be eight years. Eight years! Yeah. Still on uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto V, but a very mainstream game. It's been sold not only on the PlayStation 3, the PlayStation 4, but I think it's going to be now ported. It's going to be re-release on the PS5. So it'll be, so I think that's the first time that the same game will be cover three generations. Now, I know people are going to say, well, what about remakes or whatever, but I'm talking about the same base game, you know, same multiplayer, same transactions across three systems and the PC. Yeah, uh, it's, it's crazy. They could have been working all of this time on something a little bit more creative. You know, everyone can go to the bar and talk about Grand Theft Auto V and all of the different mods, but you're not going to hear someone walk into the bar and say, Hey, have you played Freedom Fighters recently? That's a game that I really enjoyed, the early 2000s. Oh, tell me about that, because I'd never actually heard of that game. Oh, Freedom Fighters was uh, this really cool concept, this alternate timeline where the Soviet Union created the atom bomb first and dropped it uh, in Berlin to stop the Second World War. And in the early 2000s, they do a sneak attack on the city of New York. And you started this player, Christopher Stone, Who's this plumber turned vigilante, you know, leader to go under into the, the sewers and start this resistance movement against the invaders? They do the transitions between missions through the Soviet Union's uh, media controlled, you know, kind of news reporter going back and forth. And they have, a, you know, it's very comical and, you know, enjoying uh, the, the, the news chronicling your adventures, but the gameplay. Uh, was unique in the sense that as a freedom fighter, you were able to recruit others who were wounded along the way that you found along the missions. You could give them clothes and gun and uh, some water and stuff, and they could start fighting for you. So you'd be able to command at least eight people to go along with you on a mission and command them to hold defense on this area, go attack that area, you know, take two people with you and go to a different area, and all in, all seven NPCs would go out and like attempt to uh, uh, complete the objective. So for such a small game at the time, I thought it was, you know, very very different. You know, a, a different concept in the game. That sounds like something that would be released on Steam today. Something that's, you'd see, because Steam has a bunch of these games that are definitely way underneath the radar, and that. Feels like that would fit right in, and you said this was in the early two thousands. Yes, it was released in uh, two thousand three, I believe. Was it a PS two game? Yes, it was for the PlayStation two 
the GameCube and the Xbox. Uh, actually, was digitally released last year on Steam. Oh, nice! So you can go replay it. Yes. Unfortunately, the multiplayer mode was not ported over to the Steam, which was a really fantastic feature of the original game. It was split up into a four-person multiplayer mode. It shared the same screen, so you could screen cheat and look into your you know, friend's window to find out where they were. But the same idea. Each player was given up to four soldiers to command either to you know, hold the fort here, come with me to go on attack, or to send them off to assassinate your friends. Oh, that sounds like, that sounds fun. And very unique for its time, because we've talked about this in our indie episode, but to develop a game from start to finish on the consoles during that era before Steam came along and Xbox Live Arcade came along, it was very difficult. You had to pay for the developer kit, there was advertising, it was a whole big shebang, and with all those tools in place, it still might fail anyway. It was very cutthroat, especially during that time. That's kind of cool that you have this developer, whoever they are, go from the start, go from the beginning to the end and succeed on this and create this really oddity of a product in terms of the story, the gameplay, and the way you describe it kind of reminds me a little bit of Hotline Miami. I'm not saying in a gameplay perspective, but in a, you know, in that gameplay, it's an alternate history where the U.S., and the Soviet Union got uh, the Cold War turned hot, basically, in that game. They're actually fighting each other. And in the end, the Soviets end up, I think, nuking one of the American cities, I think San Francisco, and kind of ends the war, but there's still hostility afterwards. So it just kind of reminds me of that. But anyway, just going back, it's, like I said, just from beginning to end, the development process, it's cool that they were able to do that during that era. They were. It was developed by IO Interactive and distributed by EA. There was talk of a sequel to Freedom Fighters because it did do so well with the help of Jesper Kide, the orchestra, uh, the yeah, orchestrator for the music of the video game. But uh, Io got involved with uh, a small game, Kane and Lynch. Oh yeah, I remember that game. I, and they had a sequel too. Never played them, but I always knew about them. Or roughly the, about the cult-like status. Well, that game did a lot better than Freedom Fighters. So EA decided to go with the better winning game. Thus, why I'd like to talk about in today's episode, a more mainstream game stopped the development of a very interesting, unique game before it. You know, I still remember it. I'm glad that it's out on Steam, and it's the single-player uh, campaign, so you'd be able to uh, you know, command all eight soldiers, which is the most powerful feeling in the world. But the multiplayer and the, uh, the campaign with your friends, sitting in a room strategizing in your little small corner, but being able to see into the windows of your friends. It's a, an experience that uh, I want to share with others, but it seems that the technology isn't catching up. Yeah, no, I definitely... I, I, it makes you wish that the developers, publisher, whomever, could release an update to this, to Freedom Fighters. It's like a Steam Workshop thing, and if people want to create like a multiplayer mod to have... So that way they can play with their friends in the same way that you did back in the early 2000s. It'd be cool to be given that kind of tools, that kind of access. I mean, a lot of games do that now. I'm not sure how it goes with retrofitting old games to do something like that. But they'll do. They'll initially release it as single player and then they'll release a multiplayer mod and people can slice and dice to their heart's content. I'm actually really impressed with how far uh, game modders can go with you know source material. I don't know if you've seen... Uh, on YouTube recently, but someone has modded GoldenEye 
with the Mario characters. I didn't see that, but I did see a really impressive GoldenEye mod where somebody took GoldenEye, uh, you know, released the port on PC. Like they, it's not, it wasn't originally made for PC though, but they found a way to have it so that way you can play it on PC, but they found a way to make it so that way you can use your mouse and keyboard playing GoldenEye as if it was a PC game. Because you go back and play GoldenEye, now these days it's like, sure, it's fun for nostalgia, right? But it's tough because of the N64 controller and the really ch shitty graphics on a, you know, 1080 or a 4K TV for that matter. And I was playing it during Christmas and I was playing GoldenEye and I'm, I'm on the first level, the damn level. And I'm trying to zoom in and take out some guys on these top of the towers, but I'm not joking. It was so blurry and so difficult. It doesn't matter if you're sitting an inch away from the TV or 10 feet away from the TV. It was just really hard to see them. Like, I can't stress how difficult that stuff was, but I somehow was able to beat the first level on Double O Agent. And then I attempted the second level and all the tricks I remember as a kid just didn't work. I, I am so rusty, but yeah, they found the modders found a way to basically make GoldenEye kind of the definitive edition where they upped the resolution and they made it a mouse and keyboard type game. And it was awesome. That's awesome. I mean, uh, I've also, you know, seen videos on YouTube similar to what you're describing. And just for the pinpoint players to know, uh, when you were referring to the first episode, uh, the first um, mission in GoldenEye as the damn mission, it, you, you weren't speaking like out of frustration. It's actually called the damn mission. You, you, you do mission on a dam. Yeah, it's that part. It's that part in the movie where it's like a it's like if the first part of the movie uh, had a kind of a, a backstory. Sub, yeah, a backstory. Like so the first part in the movie, Goldeneye, where he uh, I think Bung yeah, Bungie jumps off the dam. So, yeah, this is like the first level is like the 15 minutes beforehand. Which is kind of cool that the game did that to kind of make it seem like enhancing the movie without us realizing it until years later. Yeah, kind of creating that element of, like, he worked really hard to get where he was in the movie. Uh... Although I do I do like the uh, idea that if you go into that part and you're shooting everybody up, making a shit ton of noise, shooting your Kalashnikov, and it's like, yes, I made it to the edge of the dam and I jumped in and luckily nobody below heard me. Man, I'm good. Yeah, super stealth spy. You know, everyone who could have heard what I did is dead. <laughs> it, it, it is 100% stealth if nobody's there to report it. Yes, but GoldenEye was a pretty interesting uh, game at the time, too, because it, it, uh, it, was a, it was a movie game, and it was actually released two years after GoldenEye the film uh, hit theaters, which was very upsetting to the producers on GoldenEye because they wanted it to sync up. They were like, well, who's going to remember the movie when the game comes out? Oh, please. Plenty of people. I mean, we all remember this. We're like, what, 30? No, not 30. We're like 25 years later from this, and we still remember. There's still a legacy to it. It's a shame that the it's a shame the remake kind of sucked and was just a Call of Duty clone, but the first game for the N64, no, that lives on in our hearts. But yeah, that was another... It was, I'll admit it was kind of mainstream because it got a lot of press PR because it's the game movie, but... Uh, it was obscure in the idea, yeah, like a movie tie-in game, because I think that was a very new concept back then. Yeah, I, I, it actually speaks to its obscurity, the fact that um, mods for it exist in such a variety of, uh, of playable ways. For example, your the ones that you found, the HD reboot to make sure that when you're you know trying to sniper the the guys in the tower. The resolution is, you know, at par to what we're used to now. It has grown with us. 
even though it is 25 years old, essentially. And right. it shouldn't be that way. But we bring it out from obscurity into today's world. And we make it the way it should be today. And that's just it. The legacy of it ensures that it survives the ages with these mods. And although it might have been obscure at the time, we love it for its, you know, at the time obscurity now. Today now it's more of a... I can't say it's mainstream because for millennials, it's just something we grew up with. It, Goldeneye is Goldeneye, but for anybody younger, I, I, I don't want to generalize too much, but I feel like the... The legacy, the effects just aren't going to be there. And so in that sense, it then comes back, it then becomes obscure all over again. Yeah. Uh, the sense that you said, uh, the legacy of it, it, it made me realize that, uh, um, uh, did you, were you ever a part of uh, Twitch plays Pokemon when that hit? Oh man. Uh, so I, I was not watching it religiously, but I was always keeping it up randomly like, yeah, random gaming websites would say, like, hey, they defeated the first gym member. Hey, they defeated the third gym member. And they're like, and then I saw the, hey, they beat the entire game. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm, the entire time I'm thinking, someone's going to mess this up. There's no way they're going to get through it. Everyone's going to work against them. But, by God, they did it somehow. And good for them. But it is amazing how they did that, too. They created a system of democracy. They were able to control votes in a sense that um, what laid out was kind of this legacy, this historical retelling of how crazy and chaotic it all was. The fact that we're kind of creating this legacy for GoldenEye, one of the greatest multiplayer games of all time. Interesting, you know, parallel, Freedom Fighters and GoldenEye shared the same multiplayer format. Just an interesting parallel I'd like to bring up. But it's carried over into its obscurity today. I'm really glad to see that Freedom Fighters is available on Steam. Uh, I highly recommend some pinpoint players go out and play it. Tell me what you think. There's Yeah, there's a couple of other games out there that we played that uh, were out of the norm, kind of different. They must have had a different format or, or something, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got, I've got a couple from my childhood, and I've got a couple more recent ones. I mean, even from my own personal childhood, two come to mind. I mean, one is... So one is, I mentioned on the last episode of Season 2, was Intelligent Cube. It was that puzzle-solving game that came up for the PS1 that I originally was only ever to play it out on the demo disc. And I was only ever to play the first level, and even then I was pretty bad at it, but I was always intrigued by it to always go back and try again, keep trying to get better. And I, as a kid, I probably didn't get that great at it, but I went back to as an adult using the whole create a Japanese account to go download the PS1 game and then play it on my regular PS3. And I played it, and it was fun. It was really fun. It's still one of the most unique puzzle games I've ever played before, where you have rolling blocks coming at you and you have to disintegrate them. Again, I can't do the explanation justice, so you should, you should go look up Intelligent Cube gameplay and you'll see what I mean. But yeah, released in 97. It was a fantastic puzzle game, and I only ever got to play the demo disc until I was an adult. And But... It's an obscure game back then, and it's a really obscure game now, because back then, yes, it did come on the demo disc, but it wasn't widely released in North America to the same degree that, you know, maybe Crash Bandicoot, Tomb Raider, Jet Moto, and some of the other games were released. And because of that, it doesn't have that enduring legacy. So in the one sense, it was obscure then, more or less, and it's obscure now. I mean, today, the only way to play the game, as far as I'm aware, is you either have to 
get the PS1 disc and play it in a system that can handle it, whether it's a PS1, 2, or 3. That's one way. And then the other way is to take out, dust off your PS3 and do what I did, make a Japanese account and then download the PS1 title. But at some point, that technique might not work because I think at some point they're going to close down the, the PlayStation 3 online shop because that system is now pretty old. I think it's been out officially for 15, 16 years now. Yeah, it, it, does, it does sound like it's in its... Uh last heyday older systems do tend to just become sort of a financial burden to a lot of companies not only sony but nintendo nintendo as well is pretty notorious for uh closing its accounts i'm pretty sure that the wii is not going to have uh, playable accounts pretty soon just because of its age as well there's a lot of old online features for the gamecube that have since gone extinct oh yeah that's the thing it's um at some point, there's a. It's it was bad when the I won't say it was bad, but it felt a little bit bittersweet when a system in your living room was replaced by its new one. You had your PS1 to PS2, but it didn't feel as bad there because your PS2 could play PS1 games. And then with PS3, yes, you could have some PS2 games played on PS3 when the PS3 was first released. Then they killed the backwards compatibility later on. Then the Xbox 360 could play Xbox one games or the first xbox the whole naming convention with xbox is a mess and then xbox one could play some 360 the point is in some form or another there's always backwards compatibility but what makes it harder today is the backwards compatibility is not as prevalent and the online shops that came along with each systems from the wii ps3 xbox 360 generations are disappearing before our eyes so it'll be the hate so these last little hades will be a little bit different it's like, yeah, you'll be able to turn the systems on, but there won't be an online store or anything like that. You'll just boot up your system. That's it. And, you know, I hope that one day there isn't like a, like a kind of like a small kill switch that every company has sort of, you know, put into their devices after like, after like 50 years or something. It's just like, oh no, and now you can't play GameCube anymore because, you know, power generator doesn't work with updated technology and we're not interested in fixing back oh no we've advanced and you know my fear is i hope something like that does not happen or hasn't happened wink wink nudge nudge say no more say no more (laughs) (laughs) another another but yeah my other fear in that regard is uh you have systems where games need patches to work but if that online but the online's down on like say the ps3 and you're trying to play maybe an old ps3 game but the thing is if that ps3 game was never ship with a proper patch before being shut off. You could, be, you could potentially be playing a very buggy game that may not work when you get to a certain level point. I know example that is that I remember is in Killzone 3, it makes you download this giant patch when the game first launches. And I certainly hope that in the future when people go to replay that, that's not going to be an issue when the PS3 online shop is shut down and they're not updating the system anymore. But time will tell. I mean, we're going to find this out maybe... When we're, when we're recording this podcast, maybe about two or three years tops. Wow. Well, you know, fingers crossed. I think that the community, uh, the players' community, will certainly speak about it when those times come. Uh, I'm certainly afraid because doing research for this uh, episode, I looked into one of my favorite games that uh, you and I actually played uh, frequently a lot, uh, Sneak King. Oh my God. You want obscure? Tell them how they tell them how you could get that game back in the day. You could buy a, like a premium meal at Burger King, 
and they gave you one of three games uh, with your meal. It was about five bucks. You know, you got a game, you got a sandwich, you got french fries and a Coke. I mean, hey, that's pretty cool. The two other games were just garbage. One was like a puzzle, and it was like, you know, Jeopardy kind of style with the Burger King mascot, that creepy ass mother just standing there trying, you're trying to solve a puzzle, and one of them was kind of like a, a golf cart or like a, a like a race with mini golf cart or things. It was a race kind of game. But the third one was just called Sneak King, where you controlled the uh, mascot of Burger King who snuck up on people working and presented them with either hash browns, a biscuit, some coffee, a burger, or a croissant sandwich, uh, and you had to uh, you know, complete challenges in the game. Uh, it was very, very you know, quick. You know, they didn't have a lot of time to develop it, but Burger King actually created its own uh, company separate from Burger King. It was called King, yeah, King Games. Its own company. And, uh, from what I've read, it's the, it's the only games that this company has developed. Seriously? They created a company and the only game they ever made was Sneak King and those other two garbage ones? Yep. And Sneak King was released, if I remember correctly, 2006. 2006? Oh my god, 15 years since that trash came out. An entire company developed uh, for this game. And they haven't, you know, they haven't released anything in 15 years. So, if you want obscure, what a waste of paperwork. <laughs> if you want, if you want obscure, this is one of the most fun, addicting uh, games because it's so simple. It was, uh, it wasn't intended to be as uh, popular as it was. In fact, in 2006, this was one of the top 10 highest-grossing games of the year. Wait, is that serious? I'm serious. How? You gotta... Dude, you and I remember. We played this game. How addicting and, like, and crazy it was. But, like, how, how was it top grossing? You bought it with your Burger King meal. Everyone went to Burger King to get this game. Oh, oh, I see. Fudging the stats in that regard. That's sneaky. You could say it was sneaking. Get out. <laughs> But uh, the gameplay was actually pretty uh, addicting, which is one of the reasons I think it was you know, such a success. It was a very simple premise. Once you snuck up on an individual who was hungry enough, you were able to surprise them by pressing A once, and one to trigger how uh, gracious the flourish was, rate how great your delivery was. And because it was so, oh, I don't know, just easy sloppy put i mean i really hope that you go out and you know look at footage or you know find a way to invest it uh to play this game you would just need an xbox console or an xbox 360 yeah i doubt it works for anything newer than that folks yeah no it doesn't <laughs> it's so fun to it's just so, it was just so fun to play it, it, it was it, the challenges kept getting more and more officially there's 20 missions but you were allowed to, f f you know, roam free in four different sections. Uh, there was a carnival, there was a woodmill, uh, there was an office, and I forget what the fourth one was. Um, oh boy, open world, like GTA, jeez. 
it was insane how good this game was. You can go out and, you know, talk about Call of Duty. You can go out and talk about um, Grand Theft Auto 4, Grand Theft Auto 5, all these mainstream games. But man, Sneak King really has more to talk about than any of those other games do, honest to God. When it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I got a couple I got a couple more though. I definitely it's it's not quite Sneak King obscure because that is probably gonna be the be the most obscure game that we talk about tonight. But I will say obscure for its time. Talk to Intelligent Cube, that obscureness. But the other one I did want to mention was I played a game when I was younger. One of those games was called Spin Dizzy Worlds. And it's this very, very obscure game. And back then, maybe it sold a little bit and it had a little bit of a legacy for a couple of years. But it was a game where you assume the control of a spinning top and you try and go through levels while bouncing on platforms, hitting switches, hitting levels you know, hitting, yeah, levers and whatnot, and you're trying to navigate through the level, activating certain... It's basically, it had a lot of puzzle elements to it as well. I mean, it was very obscure for what it is. Like I said, Spin Easy World, it was published by Activision, originally came out on the Amiga, the Atari, and then it came out on the SNES in 1993 in North America. And I played it, and I could never beat it. It was one of those games where... Perhaps if I got back to it as an adult, maybe I could have beat it from a knowledge standpoint, but from a gameplay standpoint, I'm probably sure I'd be very, very rusty and terrible and couldn't get back to where I was. But it was one but I have to stress it because it was one of those games that was completely an odd thing for me as a six, seven year old to play, but I was just fascinated with it in terms of the the colors at the time, the graphics at the time, and the, the gameplay being so different from all the other games I played at the time. Because remember, I played stuff like Chrono Trigger, played Mario, I played Pilot Wings, played a couple of fighting games like Street Fighter, but this was completely different from anything that we've played before. Yeah, uh, there's a simple thing that I kind of noticed amongst all of these obscure games, and it's kind of its simplicity. How each game sort of exemplifies a simple trait. I don't remember how I heard Gordon Ramsay say this, but when he was talking about creating a dish for a restaurant, it was always best to simplify it. You know, when you when you know you're good at cooking fish, cook fish the best. Don't worry about all the other garnishes and things like that. These obscure games sort of harness uh, a simple thing to do, a small task, and you really hone in and unify the application in such an enjoyable way. Absolutely. That's the thing. Sometimes you can have, sometimes these obscure indie-ish type games, you love them because they're completely obscure. And sometimes you love them because they're obscure, but they also have a simplistic nature about them. And a couple others that I do want to mention, definitely Euro Truck Simulator. Yeah, it's incredibly simple from a gameplay standpoint. I mean, yes, there's customization with your truck that you drive. You can do left-hand drive, right-hand drive. You can choose the brand. You can upgrade it, you can give it, you know, cool stripes or, you know, chrome decals on it, whatever you want. Yeah, you've talked to me a lot about this game, so I'm interested right. to hear a little bit more. So yeah, like, yeah, now there's customization to your trailer, your truck, but the gameplay is really simple. All you simply do is you take an order, you either you can take a custom order, you go to, a, or you go to a place to pick up an order, and then you just drive it to its intended location. So it can be in, you can start off in Wales and end up in 
Berlin, Germany, or you can end up in, or you can start in Copenhagen, Denmark and end up in, I think like South of France. Point was, it's incredibly simple. I mean, the roads, the graphics, they're all simple. Like you're driving on the highway most of the time. As like, as far as gameplay, it's not really engaging at all from a, you know, like playing Call of Duty where you shoot guys or playing Assassin's Creed and you climb objects. Very different game. It's super different in the way it entertains you, but hear me out, folks. Find your favorite podcast and just put that on your computer on one screen. Go into the game, uh, mute any of the music in the game, and just it makes it it's a very cathartic experience listening to a podcast while you're driving through fake Europe or fake America if you guys want to play American Truck Simulator. Point is, it's just very cathartic in a way that's fun to explain, really, that I can't really explain and give it too much justice, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of also resonate with that. My family, yeah, my family has a, a summer cabin up in Maine, and driving up there from Massachusetts, we would listen to the radio, we would have different kinds of games to keep our mind active, but looking out at just the wilderness kind of becoming more you know, the thicker going from this urban Massachusetts to the coast of uh, Portsmouth, not Portsmouth, yeah, no Portsmouth, <laughs> uh, crossing the bridge and just thickness and wilderness. It was this, you know, very relaxing kind of sensibility. My brother actually is a trucker and uh, he did cross country uh, for a while and then he got a pretty sweet gig here in Massachusetts and he's the Listen, I believe listening to the podcast, I just want to shout out to JT, hey big bro. Shout out to JT. Yeah, uh, Euro Truck Simulator kind of uh, gives you that experience that uh, my brother has talked to me a lot about. Um, one of his, one of the most interesting things, he actually uh, did a YouTube series for a while chronicling his uh, traveling, I think he was in Oklahoma and he was going to uh, the Rockies. He was going through Colorado, and he got a a, a, a dash cam from Christmas, and uh, put a, a, a small montage together. It was the most beautiful thing in the world. And at first, he, he described how it was a little bit intimidating, kind of leaving Massachusetts and going broadening the horizons to the rest of the country. And I kind of just reminded him that you know the country is sort of our home a sense uh, you know the, the sensibilities of Massachusetts is something that we bring with us when we travel and uh, he you know shouldn't be worried about meeting others along the way and uh, I'm glad that uh, that sort of sense of comfort yeah the way that you're describing it the way that your truck simulator plays is this sort of uh, sense of calm about it you're just able to tune out to this very simple thing um, yeah, and, and soon the miles clock along and you reach your destination and hopefully you've been listening to the pinpoint players while you play the game. Hopefully you'll be, uh, hopefully you'll be inspiring future folks to do that one in the future. But in the case of this, yeah, no, it's, uh, given the last year, unless you've been living on a rock, everybody knows what's going on with the pandemic. And so everybody needs that little moment of calm, whatever it might be, whether it's, I don't know, going on a walk or going on a hike or even if you can't go outside because of, you know, the world the way it is, or maybe it's bad weather out, if you want to do something as cathartic and relaxing as this, this is also now an option. So speaking of things that uh, are very relaxing, there's actually another game that uh, uh, I think that we should discuss, uh, Thief Simulator. 
because it's a very yep. relaxing, cathartic game. Oh, very much so, and and that's the th- that's the game that kind of inspired this episode. I mean, for folks who aren't familiar, Thief Simulator is a game where you assume a character that's just got released from prison recently, and you get a phone call from some random mobster guy. The story is pretty thin, but he tells you that to you know to earn your freedom, basically. Yeah, the story is not important. To... The story is not important with this game. Yeah, turn. Turn your freedom, you have to basically steal specific stuff from specific houses, but you have the entire, you know, three, maybe four neighborhoods now. I'm not, I haven't played the game in a little while, but I think it, I think in the beginning it was two neighborhoods and maybe now it's three. But the idea is that you have these neighborhoods to kind of, you know, do with what you want, with what you wish, because each neighborhood, I think, had something like 10 to f- 20 houses. I actually haven't been able to advance into the other neighborhoods, but um, yeah, there's a lot of different houses. Oh, the other neighborhood's way harder. It's so much harder to get into their place because it's like, it's the really expensive. It's those people with like the million dollar homes and like their security systems and they have guards and it's just like, oh my God. Sir. Holy crap. What do you guys have back there? And Dude, I can't handle it when the alarm goes off. <laughs> but yeah, no, as we're describing, you you try and break into people's houses and the objective for the objectives, you have to steal specific stuff. But if you want to just go in houses on your own, you can totally sneak into people's backyards, sneak in their windows, and steal their stuff and sell it to make upgrades to your own equipment, to your own car, drive a new car, basically. It's fantastic. And it's kind of fun to see what you can get away with. Like, walking out of the front door with a big 45-inch TV. <laughs> and then some neighbor is crossing the street, but because their vision of Cone doesn't exactly line up with where your player is in the game they're just staring at you from across the street like hey, it's no big deal he's just taking his you know very expensive tv oh he dropped it into the stranger's car and now he's driving away with it but you know that's just normal oh yeah and and when the when a car's coming down the way you just ditch the tv in the middle of the road and then just go find a hiding spot the car keeps driving just a just normal thing a flat screen tv in the middle of the road oh you know just another normal thing uh you get the idea. The basically ditching your loot temporarily to go pick it up. Oh yeah, that's totally normal. And then the cops. God, the cops, the AI are so stupid. <laughs> that's the thing. It's terrible. Like the AI when they're trying to catch you is terrible. You can hide in the house in a cabinet, and the cops will seriously just stare at the cabinet for like thirty seconds. And because the AI can't recognize like objects, you know, your player object behind, you know, a, a hiding object. They know where your character is, but they can't find him. And because they can't find him, they can't initiate, like, um, you know, arrest protocol. So they're, like, standing out there waiting to arrest you, but thinking, man, the guy's not here. Where could he be? He, I guess he just got away. Oh, uh, yeah. Several times that I've played it, whenever I've broken into the window or didn't deactivate the alarm and triggered something like that, I'd always run away. And as long as I ran away far enough, the police would respond to the call, and they'd just be like, well, that guy, he ran away, but he's not in the area, so... Well, we just have to pack this one up, boys. Well, let's go home. (laughs) Which... And then the other funny thing is, I'm not sure if it happened now, but in the early days of the game, when it came out maybe a month or two in... So yeah, we talked about how the AI is dumb. The cops would straight up drive in the middle of just the lawns. They would drive in the parks, like just to, to try and catch you. Like the, it's kind of imagine GTA where the cops will do anything to catch you. It's kind of the same thing here. They'll just drive in the most obscure place just to try and catch you, and it's hilarious. But it's all the more hilarious when you hide in the dumpster and it's 
it's like what Tim was talking about with the cone of vision. It's like there, you're just outside their cone of vision. So you can just go in the dumpster and just stay there indefinitely. Even though in real life, you like to think people can see more than 15 feet in front of them, but not in this game. Yeah, no, no. If they see you go into the dumpster, they can't like go and investigate the dumpster. They're just like, nope, I don't see him. So there's no reason to be here. But I, I sense that he is here. For some reason, I know he's here, but he's not. I just don't have a warrant to open this dumpster up. We just got to pack it up, boys. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. I loved that game so much, but it was so, yeah, it was so different. You know, a mainstream game or a mainstream publisher for a video game wouldn't look at Thief Simulator and say, this is a great idea. There'd be so many red flags. Like, hold on a sec. You want to teach people to break into people's houses? This is not a good game at all. They're, no, I'm not going to make money. Like, absolutely not. But it's such an interesting game like it it uh you're able to live out you know a fantasy of what it would be like because the game is actually very intense like oh yeah when the police are chasing you down and like the alarm is going off and you've got like 30 seconds to hide and you're like oh crap oh crap where do i go yeah it does create that heightened sense of fight or flight and you know it's it's actually very interesting how people respond to uh, playing a game like that uh innovative games you know like that uh, should be, you know, taken a second thought, you know. Uh, I think that independent publishers have more of an advantage in the market considering that they're willing to take more risks. And I think that uh, that should kind of become more mainstream. I'm actually very happy that uh, games like that are independent and sort of niche in a, in a sense because they're more enjoyable to play that way. Yes, things, things like this should have to become more mainstream. I don't think there'll be a game in the same kind of well-known, you know, sphere of influence like a Call of Duty that's going to be a thief simulator that's going to go mainstream. But if some of these obscure indie whatever types of games you want to call them can at least inject a couple features into the mainstream, that would help things a little bit feel fresh and not so stale because... It's like, could we go, and the, back to the original point, I wanted to just get across this whole thing is, could we go play AAA games and have fun? Sure. But I feel like lately, personally, I have more fun playing these obscure games and going to play these AAA games. It's not to say they can't be fun. It's like, it's like a blockbuster Hollywood movie. Sure, it could be a fantastic story. It could be entertaining. But sometimes every now and then you like to browse the obscure stuff on Netflix or whatever streaming place and just see what they got. And this is no exception. Thief Simulator definitely has its flaws, um, as we discussed with the AI, but it is such a fun concept, and I hope they make a sequel. Yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, I, I'd like to see that too, because there are, you know, uh, there are a lot of parallels um, in filmmaking in that sense, because you do get just tired of the stale old, you know, I hate to use the term, but it is becoming more of a Mickey Mouse kind of... Uh, you know, generic film just coming out every year, you know, with all the safeties that, you know, it needs to be a blockbuster and it needs to have a certain cast and it needs to have a certain kind of panache. You need to use a certain amount of CGI and it needs to be a blockbuster. And you kind of overlook where creative filmmakers are going today. There's a lot of content on YouTube. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are 
developing the craft, which Hollywood or the mainstream or whatever you want to call it, you know, they just sort of frown upon. They just, uh, you know, it's not the same type. You know, you're not being a filmmaker. You're, you know, creating a disservice. Uh, highly contrast uh, to what I believe. I, I believe that these content creators are actually innovators for this. We, yeah, the world has entered a new era, and we're adapting to survive. I feel like what we're doing for this podcast is also kind of similar. You know, we wanted to use this medium uh, to keep people informed about things that we experienced. We wanted to share that with others, and podcasting sort of is that perfect medium to do. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I'm, we're happy that we can do this. We're happy that we're kind of given the option, opportunity to do this with uh, the platforms we're on and the ways we can reach folks. And so thank you all for tuning in and sticking with us. This has been our Season 3, Episode 1 episode, uh, Obscure Games and Obscure Gaming. Uh, if you wanted to follow along with us on Instagram, you can find us at Pinpoint Players. If you would like to send us an email, you can reach us, pinpointplayers at gmail.com. We, are, we also put all our episodes on YouTube, including a lot of uh, non-podcast exclusive content. We opened up uh, some Yu-Gi-Oh! stuff somewhat recently ago. We talked about the whole GameStop Robin Hood fiasco, and we plan to put other types of that content on the YouTube channel. So if you want to check us out there, definitely go check us out there. Absolutely, and leave us some feedback. We love hearing from you. Thank you so much, Pinpoint Players. You take it easy now. See you next time.